Two and a half years ago today, I became your pastor. And uh, thank you. Lots happened. We uh, were running about 160, 170 average attendance. You can look around, that's changed. Since that time, we've, through the ministries of the church, have seen over 200 plus people accept Jesus Christ through the ministries of our church. A lot of that through our, our jail ministry and the wonderful team that leads that, but a lot of it through other ministries as well. I want to say we've had 24, 25 people baptized over the last couple summers. Uh, we've had almost 30, 30, 40, somewhere in there, people join the church. I mean, those are some cool things. Uh, my heart has been for our church to grow. Now, the first year I was on, on it was just to get to know you and for you to get to know me and hope as you got to know me you wouldn't go, oh my The second year was to really look at where we were, who we were and where we were going. And my heart is that we become a church. A church that grows the way God wants us to grow. No gimmicks. No fancy things of laser lights and fog machines and and as I was thinking through and, and, and I get bombarded all the time with if you'll just follow this plan your church will double in this amount of time I was reminded of a story imagine that And the story went something like this. There was a little family, and they loved to bake cookies. And that family baked the best chocolate chip cookies you ever saw. I mean, they were delicious. And so they made up their minds to go into business. And so they went into business, and that business took off. And everybody loved their cookies. Soon they were a big, booming business. And they sold out to some company that wanted their business. And uh, that company got in. They said, you know, we could make even more money off these cookies if we took a few shortcuts. If we didn't buy those chocolate chips, but we bought those chocolate chips. If we didn't use that butter, but we used this butter. If we did this, and we did that, and we did this. And for a short time, they made money. And then, sales started to drop. And, uh, 
They began running promotions. They began running specials. And they began running big ad campaigns. And they began running all these different things trying to get more people to eat their cookies. But sales kept dropping. They were having a big meeting. So they brought the founders, they brought the original people into the meeting. They said, what do you think the problem is? And people looked at them and they said, you don't, you're not using the original recipe. Why don't you go back to the original recipe? That's why we're doing the study in the book of Acts. I want us as a church to discover the original recipe. I want us to see why God started the church and how He started the church and what was the genius behind the church and how He powered the church and what He did with the church. Because I want us to be that kind of church. A church of the original recipe. Maybe that should be our new name. The original recipe. What do you think? Ah, well, chew on it. But up, up. Where's Joe when I need you, Joe? Yeah. Yeah. And someone goes, oh, got it. I got that. Ah. But today we're going to deal with something in the next few minutes. Oh, my goodness. Is that clock right? Wow. Go for it. Wow, I got 15 minutes. Okay, well, we will see how far we can go. This is a two part sermon, folks, whether you knew it or not. <laughs> In the church of the 20th and 21st century, one of the greatest tragedies is the topic I'm going to address this morning. It's been a source of great division and pain within the body of Christ. What makes it so tragic is that it is a, a division based on the gift that God gave to unite the church. It was a gift that God gave to empower the church. It was a gift that God gave to, to be the greatest ground for bringing the church the body of Christ together. Ephesians 4 puts it this way, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to unify the body, but as we dive into this topic that we're going to talk about today, the topic of tongues, this morning I know we run the risk of bringing division into our midst. So I want you to hear me, church. I'm going to be so very sensitive to this possibility. I know that some of you have been exposed to people who have come to you and questioned you on this. I know that some of you have come and been questioned because you haven't spoken in tongues. 
That some of you have come and said, you haven't been filled with the Spirit. You might not even be a Christian because you haven't spoken in tongues. I remember one, one person I knew who she grew up in a home that, that spoke in tongues and because she, she hadn't, she faked it for years just to get people to leave her alone. Or maybe you've been on the other side. People have attacked you for speaking in tongues. They've said you're a false Christian because you believe a false teaching. And, and I remember as a kid going to a summer camp and the teacher getting up and saying, if a person speaks in tongues, they're speaking the language of demons. So in extreme cases, the battle lines have been drawn. We've heard it from both sides. And what makes this such a tender subject is you're dealing with people's experiences. And this, these experiences are so incredibly personal. This is what makes it so hard as a preacher of the Word of God is we have to take a person's experience, but we take those experiences and we view them through the lens of Scripture and interpret them. It is when we allow our experiences to interpret Scripture that we start getting into trouble. Scripture has to always interpret experience and not the other way around. But when those experiences are so personal and so tender, it can be very tricky business to shine the light of God's truth on them. So, as I dive into the passage today, I want to see what the passage teaches. And I'm going to make this promise to you. I want to take our time. I want to pause carefully and look at what happened in Jerusalem at that day of Pentecost. Here's my process. We're going to see what the Scriptures have to say. I'm going to strive to simply let the Scriptures speak. Whenever possible, I'm going to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. I do not want my bias or thoughts to get in the way any more than they will because I am human. But I also want to ask a favor of you. Because this is an intensely personal topic, some of you may passionately disagree with me and what I'm going to teach over the next week or two. So I'm going to ask these things of you. Number one, pray for me. Secondly, will you resolve, will you make up your mind to maintain the bond of unity with me? Will you commit to be my brother and sister in Christ? I commit to be your brother in Christ through this whole process. Because this is not an area we should divide on. We should maintain our bond of unity. I am okay with you passionately, with gusto, diving into the Scriptures and wrestling with me on these points and coming to a different conclusion. But let us, under supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit, live in His unity in the midst of our diversity in the days ahead. So let's dive in. When the day of Pentecost arrived, 
they were all together in one place. You're going, wow, that's really deep, Pastor Greg. Well, last week we talked about Pentecost. If you weren't here, shame on your sin-sick soul. No, no, no. Just, just, just. Last week, I took all of Pentecost apart, and you probably have never heard what I talked about. So you need to go online if you want to be caught up and listen to it. Because that's a very key word, Pentecost. And you probably have not been taught the feasts of the Bible. And I took uh, several minutes last week and taught the Feast of the Bible. So I'm going to encourage you to go back into our, our website, go to our sermons, and check that out. So you're caught up. But one of the things that they were doing is they were waiting for a promise. A promise. Something was promised to them. And in John 14, starting in verse 16, we find what that promise was. Here is why they are in that house. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Okay, this isn't for just the whole world. Why? Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Get this. For he dwells with you. Now he's talking to the disciples. For he dwells with you. So he's with them right now. And, catch this last phrase, will be in you this is going to be something brand new in you wow what is he talking about this is something revolutionary this is a change this is the difference in how the holy spirit has acted in the old covenant the holy spirit would come and go he would take residence with a person and then leave remember david david sins with bathsheba and in one of his great prayers he prays his prayer and lord take not thy holy spirit from me he was afraid why because he had seen saul sin and the holy spirit left him he was afraid he was frightened that god might do the same to him the holy spirit would come and go he would come and he would might come and help someone learn how to do something he might come upon a prophet he might leave a prophet he would come and go it was not the same but now something new is going to He's going to dwell in them. This is going to be something amazing. Let's develop this a little bit more. God's heart has always been to be with His people. God walked with Adam and Eve. He had times when He met with people throughout His history. But when He came to Israel, things changed. He dwelt with His people. Remember, He had First, the cloud by day, 
and the fire by night. And then he instructed them to build something called the tabernacle. It was kind of like this giant tent. It was kind of like God's motor home. Okay, without being disrespectful, it was kind of like that. Because anytime the tabernacle would move, the people would move, and the presence of God came down and dwelt there, and the way it was set up was it would be in the middle of the people, and the whole land would be surrounded surrounding the tabernacle. So all the tribes would surround it. Why? So God could be in the middle of the people so that when you got up in the morning, you could go, there's God. Later, he would instruct them to build a temple. And God's glory would come and fill the temple. And his glory would shine. And people would fall down. It was amazing. And Israel would know, there is our God. And God would dwell with his people. Until we get to Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11. And God practices the long Minnesota goodbye. When Donna and I moved here, we went to a, a musical called How to Speak Minnesotan. And one of the songs was called The Long Minnesota Goodbye. God perfected it. It talks about in those chapters how God slowly leaves. How His presence walks away. How He's begging Israel to beg Him to come back. How He wants them to repent. How He wants them to turn. Why? Because His heart is to be with His people. But Israel doesn't even notice. And one of the reasons why the 400 silent years are silent is because Israel comes to the temple to worship and nobody's home. But God speaks again. John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, and he dwelt among men. That's the word tabernacle. He sets up shop once again in Jesus. Jesus. And so he goes and he walks among his people in Jesus. Now, let me share something with you. Remember when the veil tore in the temple? There's something we don't share. It's not in the Bible, but it's in history. The guys in the temple at the time were scared to death when it tore. Because who was supposed to be behind the, the, the veil? You can say it out loud. And it's a Sunday school answer, okay? One, two, three. God. 
Now, God's glory... How many of you ever saw the original uh, uh, Ark? You know, the Ark movie? Yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. Thanks, Mike. Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. You know, and, and you know, Indy says, don't look, don't look. You know, and everybody looks at the glory of God, pfft, they're all vaporized, right? They thought that was going to happen to them. So when the veil, the veil rips, they're all going, ah! Hey, Joe, you still here? I'm still here. Hey, Joe. Nobody's back there. See, they thought everyone in the temple would be vaporized. They thought that all of Jerusalem would be filled with the glory of God. And it wasn't. Why? Because they hung the glory of God on the tree. And he died for you. He died for me. So now Jesus leaves. God's no longer living among his people. Now what? <laughs> Look at the verse. The promise. The Holy Spirit comes to be in us. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? You who are His Spirit are now the home of the Holy Spirit so God can dwell with His people. Your temples. Some of us are extra wide temples. Because I'm a full gospel preacher. <laughs> no. We're temples of God. The moment you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Spirit takes residence. And what does that mean? It means you have a promise. I will never, and the way it's written in the Greek is this, I will never, ever leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. You're never alone. You're never forsaken. But I feel that way sometimes. When you feel that way, would you knot the end of the rope of that promise and hold on? Because you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells within you something brand new. 
Now, next week, we're going to talk about the baptism of the Spirit and what that means. But you've got to wait till next week. Because I just ran out of time. But I'm going to ask my friend and brother, Fred Mayer, to come up and pray for us. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. And just remember... You are the temple of God when you know Jesus Christ. Amen?